coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, the newly sworn in Brooklyn District Attorney, Eric Gonzalez. And then, 20,000 feathers representing 20,000 slaves. Hi, and welcome to the show. I'm Ashley Ford. Thanks for joining us. I'm excited for today's conversations. First with the state and city's first Latino district attorney, our district attorney, Eric Gonzalez, who was recently sworn in. He'll talk to us about his new justice initiative announced last Wednesday, closing Rikers, conviction review, and more. Also, commemorating the state's slave history with art. But first, a few things. At the Grammys on Sunday at Madison Square Garden in New York City, Fittingly, there was a tribute to the 58 individuals who were killed and hundreds who were injured last year in the mass shooting during a country music concert in Las Vegas. Remember after that, the renewed call for gun control and how everyone seemed to at least rally around the prohibition of bump stocks? In case you didn't know, bump stocks are the retrofit that allowed the shooter to fire an estimated nine rounds per second from his semi-automatic rifle. Nine rounds per second. Well, that predictably went nowhere, nationally anyway. Though a lot of people would say after Sandy Hook, how could we be surprised by that? But now a piece of legislation that bans the sale of bump socks is making its way through the New York State Assembly. The Brooklyn Eagle reports that it's being backed by assistant speaker from Sunset Park and Red Hooked, Felix Ortiz and it seems likely to gain passage. According to the Brooklyn Eagle, Ortiz says, the possession of machine guns by civilians has been prohibited in the United States for close to a century. There is no legitimate reason for any person to possess the functional equivalent of a machine gun. I agree. The president of the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association and an NRA board member said about the legislation back in October, I just think it's much too early to discuss this. It's the typical liberals using a tragedy. Does he think it's an appropriate time now? Probably not. Nobody ever seems to think it's the time right now. By his logic, there's never going to be an appropriate time to discuss any kind of gun control because there's a gun-related tragedy, or to be more precise, a mass shooting almost every day in America. Oh, and at the time of taping, there have already been 11 school shootings in 2018. It's not even February. And a couple quick bulletins. People have until Wednesday to enroll in New York State for Obamacare. Are we still calling it Obamacare? Is that a thing we're doing? Well, either way, you have until Wednesday to get it done. And Patch reports that a Park Slope juice purveyor is planning a run for president against Trump in 2020, with campaign finance reform and regular colonics as part of his platform. No disrespect to him, but dear Mr. President, how you've lowered the bar. We'll be back with the Brooklyn District Attorney in just a moment. Population in city jails is lower than it's been in 35 years. Crime is down to historic levels. Yet criminal justice reform advocates, especially ones in this borough, are as vocal as ever. How did we get here? And what does this mean for one of the largest prosecutor's offices in the country? 
We'll find out from the new boss of that office who was recently sworn in. No longer with acting in front of his title, we welcome the Brooklyn District Attorney Eric Gonzalez to 112BK. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. I wanted to, um, one of the things that I know you've been working on that I wanted to give you a chance to talk about a little bit right up front is Justice 2020. What is it? So it's a groundbreaking initiative trying to, for the first time, really incorporate the community into the practices of the DA's office. Mm -hmm. We have over 60 uh, experts on criminal justice issues, but what's exciting about it is it's not just criminal justice experts. There are professors, in fact, the chief judge, uh, former chief judge of uh, Court of Appeals, Jonathan Lipman, mm -hmm. is a co-chair, and Megar Evers College President, Rudy Crew, mm -hmm. are co-chairing. So really, you know, established, established leaders on issues, but also we have formerly incarcerated people, we have people from the police department, we have public defenders, and then the think tanks, the Vera Institute, the Brennan Center, and many other organizations and service providers like Fortune Society. And we're bringing them all together um, to talk about how we can get the criminal justice system that we want for Brooklyn. Absolutely. Be because we're in a really special time. You talked about historic crime lows, mm -hmm. and when I joined the DA's office, it wasn't like that. And I've been a, a prosecutor for over 20 years, um, grew up in East New York in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. and we led the city in homicides and shootings for many, many years. Um, it motivated me to want to be a prosecutor, but I also was motivated by the sense that our justice system failed many people, um, right. poor people, people of color, and uh, it motivated me to want to become part of that institution so I could make it a better place. And Is that why Justice 2020 has so many of these unheard or underrepresented voices as part of, you know, the makings of it and, the, you know, the people who are pushing this agenda and this narrative? I mean, I've never heard, to be perfectly honest, of having formerly incarcerated people be part of something like this. It's purposeful. And, in mm -hmm. fact, the uh, Justice... 2020 committee does not have uh, people who actively supported me in my campaign running for DA. It's a lot of people from who are critical of our justice system. Wow. I wanted to give them a voice. Um, when they get together, they're going to put proposals and those proposals will be publicly announced and I will be adopting the ones who share my vision. Mm -hmm. You know, and the vision for Justice 2020 and for this DA's office going forward is going to be keeping Brooklyn safe, but also ensuring that uh, we strengthen our community's trust in our justice system mm. by ensuring fairness and equal justice for all. It's going to be tough, isn't it? I feel like, you know, and I come from a family that lots of people in my family work in law enforcement. But what I've seen over the past few years and in Brooklyn and even back in Indiana is this breakdown of communication and also of trust between people like the NYPD, people like FWPD in Fort Wayne, Indiana, between them and the communities that they're served, there's a breakdown in trust, there's a breakdown in understanding. Is Justice 2020 about resolving that? It is. Um, part of the uh, idea behind Justice 2020 is that the community should have a stake in what the justice system looks like. Mm -hmm. So we have members of the clergy on the task force. We have community stakeholders. They need to have a voice in their DA's office, right? Everyone wants to be safe. Right. But we also want 
fundamental fairness. Mm. And until we have an office or a justice system that is perpetuating the sense that people are treated fairly, um, people won't believe that there's justice. Mm. So can you tell me if this goes well? Okay, if you're accomplishing these goals and we've got less people in prison, we've got more trust between, and jails, and we've got more trust between the communities and the officers who serve them, can you imagine that there will be a time when the DA's office actually has to downsize or reimagine the role? Well, that's what's happening now. I don't mm -hmm. see us downsizing. Um, I see us reimagining how we operate. You know, for too long, and it was something that I've thought about long and hard. The role of the DA's office seemed like it was about punishing people. Mm. Punishing people who made mistakes, punishing people who committed crimes. Um, I have a bigger and broader role for this DA's office. I mm. believe it should be about helping people and helping the community and figuring out how do we hold people accountable for their conduct, but we don't have so much reliance on sending people to prison. We go about um, providing services to get them back on track. Right. One of the things I saw growing up in Brooklyn was when young men, and particularly men of color, mm -hmm. made mistakes and they committed crimes, their lives got derailed and never got a chance to get back on track. Never, and so that's why, for example, we have a young adult court in Brooklyn for the first time that's mm -hmm. really about holding people accountable by getting to what their underlying needs are. So it's about social services and social workers more than it's about, you know, probation or, you know, community service or even jail. And I think if we do this right, mm -hmm. we can really make the community believe that the DA's office is an ally because we're going to help heal right. communities. I think that that's totally possible. And you know, one of the critiques, though, that I see of that is sometimes the language or sometimes um, the confusing directives that come out of the DA um, and that comes out of some of these laws for police officers. Like, we've decriminalized in a certain way possession, or you won't go to jail for possession, but you will go to jail for smoking in public, right? Well, yes and no. Of marijuana. Yes, yes and no. We've, got, we've come a long way from the time that the office and my predecessor, the late great Ken Thompson, mm -hmm. um, I was his chief assistant um, before he passed, and we created a policy in Brooklyn to sort of address the uh, problems with marijuana. We saw many young people coming into the system, people who really had no criminal records, but their first contacts were often these marijuana cases. Mm -hmm. And we saw that they started, started to come into the system on these cases. These cases did not keep us safe. They cost a lot of money, and they mm -hmm. started to criminalize young people who were now arrested, put to central booking, got fingerprints, got their New York State identification numbers. The idea was to try to push these cases out of the system. Mm -hmm. And from just a few years ago to today, we're down 70 plus percent in the number of cases we process. I believe we can do more and we will work to do more, uh, but it's also bringing the community along because I can tell you that um, some people complain if someone's in their lobby smoking marijuana yeah, and they want the police to respond. So we always have to figure out how we protect people from you know, living their lives, but making sure the justice system does not ruin people's lives. Because these low-level mistakes can't lead to people being unemployed, unemployable right. or, or not being able to pursue their education.
Absolutely. And earlier you were talking about um, seeing as a, when you lived um, in the neighborhood and growing up, that a lot of these laws disproportionately affected young men of color. Is that still the case? Are we still seeing that the majority of the people being prosecuted, even though the numbers have come down, are you know people of color, men of color? I think so. I mean, it's pretty clear that, uh, especially when we're looking at low-level offenses, enforcement practices tend to be in neighborhoods that have higher crime rates. Mm -hmm. um, more enforcement means more arrest and means more people of color being brought into the system. Right. We see this um, as a particular and acute problem in the setting of bail on these cases because yeah. a lot of young people and people of color who are you know, either working class or poor um, can't make low amounts of bail. So a $1,000 or a $500 bail can keep someone in where someone who is, you know, right. has a better economic situation can make bail. Those decisions really have a great impact on whether or not that person will be given procedural justice in our, in our system and the fairness that people perceive. So if someone's kept in jail on a very low level offense and they see their only way out by pleading guilty, right. um, they are going to think that they didn't receive a fair shake. Mm -hmm. And many of us agree that that can't be the way that we move forward. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, moving on a little bit, when Rikers closes, which is supposed to be happening in 2000, is it 20? It's 10 years from when the mayor announced 10 years it. from whenever the mayor announced it, we're supposed to see this change happen. Um, I'm being told that Brooklyn is supposed to absorb some of that population. Does that mean an expansion of facilities here? And what does that mean for downtown Brooklyn? So I think that's a conversation that's going to have, have to happen with the community right. and the people who are going to plan the jails. Mm -hmm. I will say that we do have a functioning working jail in downtown Brooklyn mm -hmm. that has the capacity I believe if we get our jail population down to house most of the Brooklyn population, if not all of it. Right. Um, but can we take populations from other counties? I don't believe so. Right. Uh, so but there's, there's going to be, it's, that's a political question. What I do know is that um, closing Rikers is necessary. Mm -hmm. um, I'm in support of doing that. And I think it's beneficial for people who um, unfortunately have to spend time in a lockup, that their families are able to visit them, that they're right. downtown. Um, so I, I think we have an option here, but the people who are going to decide whether or not uh, a jail is viable where it's at, we're going to have to really have community uh, meetings. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I'm going to want to be part of those meetings, to be perfectly honest. But can you talk to me a little bit about the conviction review unit and about how that's going? Because I know a lot of people, and that's another thing with that breakdown in trust, um, have heard so many stories lately about, you know, prosecutorial misconduct and they're concerned. And they're concerned that people won't be held accountable for it. What do you say to people who have those concerns? It's a great question. Um, our conviction review unit in Brooklyn is a fully staffed unit. We are um, doing a lot of work. We've reviewed over 100 cases already, uh, really remarkable. We are leading the country in how we do this work and the transparency by which we do it. Um, so far, we've vacated 24 wrongful convictions um, in about less than four years. 
Um, we expect to exonerate more people as the work continues. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what's really important is that we um, pursue these cases and make sure that no innocent person remains in prison. Mm -hmm. um, but we also need to learn from what happened. What are the reasons for these wrongful convictions? What have we learned so far? We've learned a lot. We've learned a lot. We've learned about um, wrongful withholding of evidence in cases. Mm. We've learned about the science of witness memory and whether or not identifications are accurate. We uh, vacated a conviction on uh, false-fed facts and mm -hmm. false confessions. You know, many people believed, you know, jurors believed for years if someone was on videotape confessing to the crime, they had mm -hmm. have committed that. Now we know that um, there are f such a thing as false confessions. Oh, yeah. And we know that witnesses under trauma may not be the best people to make an identification. Mm -hmm. And so we look at that and then what do we do with that? So for example, in Brooklyn, I've instructed the assistant DAs that they need to have corroboration of identification, that an identification standing by itself by one person without more may not be legally sufficient to go forward right. um, because we know that people can get it wrong. But we, also, we but we also need to do one more thing, and I think it's an important thing. We have to hold um, prosecutors accountable for yes. the decision-making. Talk to me about that. Right. So, How do you do that? Well, what I found particularly troubling was in a lot of these cases, I felt that a prosecutor um, was not really sure mm. whether or not the evidence... Um, was really sufficient, but there was a, a leaning toward let a jury decide. Put the evidence before the jury. Let's trust our criminal justice system, the adversarial nature. The defense will make their case, you know, the prosecutor will put on their case and let the jury decide. I find that troubling um, because I think that a prosecutor really must believe um, with moral certainty that they have the right person, even before asking a juror to take on that, re that tremendous responsibility. Um, and I also think that when a prosecutor is playing um, not by the rules, that they have to be held accountable. Why was this not always the case? Well, listen, I moved to East New York in the 1970s, and I grew up during the very beginning of the crack cocaine epidemic. Um, in the 80s and in, into the 90s, mm -hmm. when Brooklyn alone had over 800 homicides. I think the courts wow. were swamped. I think that the public was angry. And when cases came through the system, um, they were very inclined to want to hold people responsible for you know, the violence in our communities. We're in the peace dividend right now, and I think, you know, we talk about these reform issues and we talk mm -hmm. about how we're going to change our system. It's because we're at a time now, um, in part because of the very hard work of community activists and leaders and our police department, right. that we're safer now, and now we're looking at, at the mistakes we made. Right. And I think it's very important that myself, as the district attorney of the fourth largest DA's office in the country, mm -hmm. goes back and admit that we've made mistakes. It doesn't matter that I didn't make it or my predecessor didn't make it. The district attorney's office has made mistakes and we have to go back, we have to admit those, to those mistakes, and then we have to make sure that we rectify them, mm -hmm. we give people back their good names, and we make sure that no one else has to go through that. I just have one more question uh, before we're out of time here. Um, one of the things that has been really concerning to me uh, that I've seen are people being apprehended by ICE at 
court cases. You know, about a year ago, I started to speak out on how I feared our immigrant brothers and sisters, our neighbors, our friends would be treated. Um, mm -hmm. I kind of thought that this could happen just because of the rhetoric coming from Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. and I created an immigration unit. And I think I'm a first or second district attorney in the United States to have hired immigration attorneys because I needed the prosecutors to understand that when we're dealing with people, um, whether they have status, they're here on a visa or a green card, or they don't have status, they're undocumented, um, how we treat them in the system will have tremendous impact on you know, their ability to stay in the country. And if we aren't protecting our immigrant communities, and especially in Brooklyn, you know, approximately one out of three people in Brooklyn are an immigrant. Right. If we want our communities to feel that law enforcement cares about them, if law enforcement is an ally, then we have to make sure that we protect everyone. And, yes. and we can't pick and choose who we're going to protect. So I tell everyone, I don't care what your status is. If you're a victim or a witness, you will be treated with respect and dignity by my office. But if you're accused of a crime, you'll also be treated fairly. And a low-level brush with the law should not equate to someone being unfairly deported. So I've I been agree. speaking out on I this agree. issue. I will continue to speak out on it. And we need to get ICE out of our courtrooms. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, these were, you know, I, I hope not too easy questions. Um, and you answered them in a way that I think people will really be able to get a better view of what you're going to be doing at the DA's office and, you know, maybe even helping Thanks. repair some of that trust. Well, and I look to forward it. to coming back and also um, Justice 2020 will be back to discuss the recommendations um, that Fantastic. the committee. We'd love to have All you right, back. Thanks. Thank you. Nice Brooks Contemporary Art Team currently has an exhibit on display called Reenactment, featuring a group of artists of color who comment on our cultural myths. Alongside Reenactment is an installation called Masterwork, Slaves of New York, 1776. And what strikes you instantly when you enter the room are thousands and thousands of duck feathers. Last week, Brian Vines as artist Kinseth Armstead to explain. So we are marching rapidly towards Black History Month, and people always think of the South in terms of slavery, but your work sort of refocuses us on up North. You know, I'm making art, so it's not documentary. Mm -hmm. But in 1776, one in 10 person in New York, in the colony, was a slave. And when I first heard this fact, I was comparing New York to Virginia, and half of the people in Virginia, or about 500,000 people, were slaves. And then I said, oh, New York only had one in 10. Oh, that's not so many. It really upset me that I even had that thought. It upset me so deeply. I thought on it a long time, and that's where this piece came from, because we're so used to desensitizing ourselves about how it is that slavery was and wasn't. And uh, essentially, Slaves of New York, 1776, mm -hmm allows us to get a physical view and an emotional view of one feather for each slave in the colony of New York. Yeah. So there's 
over 20,000, and I put in another 5,000 for all the freedmen who could have been taken at any time and put into slavery by pretty much anyone. So you thought about this, and the physical manifestation of that thought was thousands of feathers, wax, tar, these wooden boards. Not, Walk me through not, that. Not all at once. Yeah, yeah. To be absolutely honest, it came and it developed over time. First, I had used feathers to work on another piece, and uh, a lot of people say, well, you know, why, why are you using the feathers as a stand-in for people? I can answer that in a number of different ways, but um, as an artist, you know, you're looking emotionally to something because it's physical what you do, uh, and you look to things that will get a response and will be strong, and then you want that response that you look inward to feel to translate to others. So. After the fact, I spent a lot of time thinking about why I had attached feathers to our existence. And then I, I started to look at language around feathers, and so I started thinking about light as a feather. And then there's other phrases, I have my notes here. Uh, a feather in your cap, which right. has to speak about value. A uh, bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Uh, feather weight. Peacocking, birds of a feather flock together, ruffled feathers, all these Flag things. Of fancy. Yeah, all of those things are amazing because they, they talk about groups of people at the same time as they talk about hope mm -hmm. and f soaring and the heights, or they're, they're experiential. So you can't think about feathers without both thinking about where they came from mm -hmm. and how awful it is that we eat these creatures. I don't want to like bemoan the metaphor, but you can't think of a feather singly either. Feathers exactly. are not solo entities. And when they are, they're very interesting that these instruments, uh, you know, the Constitution was most likely signed and, and written on a crow quill pen right. as Is well. Is there any significance to the fact that some of the feathers are completely white? Uh, yes, in that, like, I just thought that, you know, if you, I'm not re reflecting skin tones or anything like that, but mm -hmm. just that the, the history of the slave trade is that, you know, uh, we were, our ancestors were used as property, and in that use of property, then, you know, you have tons of people. The first person to give his life for, in the American Revolution, is Crispus Attucks. Uh, and I remember being a child, and I'm like, what is a mulatto? Mom, what is a mulatto? <laughs> like, I, I learned that at school, and I, like, I don't even know if anyone would teach it in that way now. Yeah. But uh, Crispus Attucks was descended from African slaves. I don't know how it, it is that he came to be uh, interracial, right. but uh, there are lots of African slaves who would have, like Sally Hemings' children's, uh, on, and like many of Sally Hemings' children, mm -hmm. been able to pass as white, uh, been light-skinned, and so there's a whole variety of color of feathers from very dark brown to light white. So we've got one minute left, and I'm going to steal 10 seconds of that quoting you to you. You said, an artist who directly challenges the denial and censorship necessary to perpetuate myths of meritocracy and the American dream. Unpack that for me in the last 30 seconds. Wow, that's possible. <laughs> so we have an idea of ourselves as an American and that obviously anyone can come here and create from scratch. But a lot of the value that we're creating from scratch of was paid for by other people's lives. Uh, and those lives, many of them were slaves. Uh, there are three books I will reference now. There's uh, Simon Shama, which is Rough Crossings, which is a book about the 30% of the British Army that was African. 
that was taken from slaveholders in order to try to maintain the British control over America. Those are lives that paid for a certain amount of uh, dominion. And then there's Gary B. Nash, which is the, uh, the Forgotten Fifth, which is about the 20 percent of American society in general that was African. Uh, and then there's my graphic novel, which is Spook, which is about James Armistead Lafayette, who's a slave and a spy. He spies for the British and the Americans, and he helps end the American Revolution. And he was not granted freedom, even though he helped end the American Revolution for George Washington, because he didn't carry a gun. He was a spy. Oh, wow. So those ironies about how it is that you can have a place where anyone who works hard can get X uh, is uh, oftentimes just false. But I still believe that America is an amazing place where almost anything can happen. We're going to leave it there. An artist who brings a reading list. We feel smarter already. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Tomorrow we'll be back with the first lawyer to arrive at JFK amidst the travel ban chaos last year. We'll also talk about the city's ethnic media and an online platform for women who are, can we say, high strung? Hope to see you then. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Barkey, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hogsack, Antonio Rosario, and our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.